So normally we'd open in a psalm, but I thought we'd do something different this morning. I thought we'd open in Isaiah. So if you turn to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. Jesus told us that that would happen. 
He said, you know, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you if you follow me. But nonetheless, follow me. And that's, why would we, why would we follow Jesus? Is, is one of the questions. An eternal reward. There's an eternal reward. Are we following Jesus because he's the victor? That would be one of the questions we would ask. And that um, certainly if you're in a battle, you're in a war, you want to align yourself with the winner of the war, right? So in World War II, when it looked like Germany was going to be the winner of the war, would you have aligned with Germany? Those, those are the kinds of questions we ask. We have to have a little bit longer vision and insight as to what really is going on in the world. And it's, I guess um, as far as World War II is concerned, um, it would depend on your citizenship, on who you would align with. Well, there were those that were citizens of Germany that didn't align with Germany. Yeah. And uh, they, they saw it for what it was. They saw the, um, the evil, and uh, they took a stand against it, even though it cost them. Guys like Bonhoeffer, Peter Bonhoeffer, who we use as uh, an example in our studies of ethics today. And that he, uh, he made a, a famous quote, it is better... Is it better to do evil than to be evil? And he answered the question with his actions against uh, against the state of Germany. And before that, he was executed. But the, the state of, of the world, we need to take note of because we need to be able to identify what's the world and what's not of the world. So why would we follow Jesus? Would we follow Jesus because he's the ultimate winner in the battle? That's, that's that that doesn't get you to heaven. Pardon? That doesn't get you to heaven. That doesn't get you to heaven. Right. Um, what is heaven? So these are the kind of questions we should ask. What is heaven? Is it a place where there's pearly gates and gold streets and, and you have a life of leisure? And, uh, you know, some would say that heaven is where you get your grapes peeled for you. Heaven, I mean, heaven, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. Uh, and uh, I want to see you yeah, I want to see heaven is a wonderful place. <laughs> so, so is heaven a place? It's where it's being communion with God who has life in Himself. Yes, heaven. Heaven is a presence. Right. It's all about the person, <clears throat> right? It's about the light of the city. The one in. Uh, it says when we read about heaven in, uh, in Revelation, it talks about that there is no darkness there. And it's not that we have, you know, an infinite power source where you can always plug in your LED light source and that kind of thing so you're able to be illuminated. Rather, God himself is the light of the city. And that, uh, who is the God that's described as the light of the city in Revelation? Anybody know? That's right. It's Jesus. But heaven is a place. He says so in Revelation. Yeah. But it's both a presence. Right. Right. But I would say that the place has no attraction apart from the person. Correct. So so yeah. What I would I would argue that um, so we, we know that we are created. It's the way that God has, has made creation is that uh, we have both a material, a corporeal body, and an immaterial, a spiritual part of us, right? So we're both um, body and soul and spirit. I'll say it in, in two immaterial aspects. And that uh, that's the way that God intended it. And we understand that in the end... That's the way that it will be recreated. We'll have a heavenly body. We'll have a heavenly city, right? Um, but apart from the source of that life, we have nothing, right? So your body is dead apart from Christ, apart from God. The city that you would live in is dark apart from God. And an interesting read, for those of you that like to read stuff, is a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's, uh, it's a uh, description of a bus ride from heaven into hell. No, from hell into heaven. Uh, 
Yeah. Ellen to heaven. So I do this every week. It's like my brain works, but my mouth doesn't. So from a bus ride from hell into heaven. So the idea of uh, heaven is, is dark and lonely, right? And uh, there's a, an opportunity of oh, hell, excuse me. <laughs> okay, so we've got livers of ribbing water today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, the, the idea is, is that, you know, what would it be like um, to be separated from God? And what would it be like to be able to come into his presence? Um, and as you approach him, what is that like? And what I would suggest is that what uh, John is about is he's trying to help us understand something that is unique in all of history. And something that's really hard to get your head around. Right? Um, how can God actually come down and... Um, abide with his people? How can he live among the people that he created in order for, for reestablishing communion? In other words, he's on a redemptive mission. He's on a rescue mission. He needs to um, take that which was lost and bring it back into fellowship. So how would God do that? So in our mind today, we got Hollywood plastered in our brain and we're all looking about um, how you know, we've got the Fantastic Four, and we've got uh, the Superman and the Avengers, and, you know, DC Comics tells you about all sorts of supernatural powers. And, uh, you know, then you then you get into, you know, like Napoleon Dynamite, he's got powers and skills, too. He's got bow skills and nunchuck skills and things like that. You know, we're, we're all looking for some kind of, uh, some kind of strength in the world, and what would it look like if God came down? Really? It would look like humility and meekness. So that's a really hard thing to get our head around because we expect at any moment Jesus is going to step into the phone booth, pull off his glasses, <laughs> rip off his coat, and there will be a red S and he'll go flying out you know, faster than a, a speeding bullet. That's kind of what we expect uh, that Messiah... The, the king would actually do, right? We don't expect that he'd be born in a manger, that he would um, actually work for a living, um, that he would um, have a, a wandering, you know, a place where he's actually homeless, right? He's at the mercy of humanity. Uh, he has no place to lay his head, right? So that's, that's uh, the story of Messiah that we read about, but people still didn't get it. They, they still don't understand that when God becomes man, he becomes fully man. And that doesn't mean that man can become fully God. So none of us in here can actually, um, we don't have life within ourselves. We can't become God. So this is a very um, difficult thing to understand because we're fully human and we can certainly understand that. We can't imagine what it's like to be fully human and yet be without sin. We can't imagine what it would be like to actually have um, life within yourself, be able to give it to whom you choose, um, and yet also have um, the frailty where you would lay your life down for another. Right? So we can't imagine that. It's, it's kind of beyond our able ability to grasp. So that's what Jesus is wrestling against. He's come to these people and he's trying to help them understand what it means that God has come to them in Messiah. And they had a lot of time to think about this and develop their theologies and their religious practice, but when it came down to it, they didn't get him when he was in their presence. They didn't they couldn't get the understanding of who Jesus was. And so that's what we see, is we see the wrestling match between um, God and his son and the world. The world cannot comprehend him. But nonetheless, there he is. So we understand that John is about trying to understand who Christ is. And more than just understand, that we would not just know but that, that that understanding of who Christ is would actually 
transform us. That by knowing the person, not in an abstract way, which is what a lot of uh, Jewish religious people did, they understood that the Messiah was going to come in an abstract way, but in a very concrete way, um, where someone can actually sit beside you and share a meal with you, right? Break bread with you. Um, that when you come into that presence of God, as he enters into creation, it transforms you. And I would suggest that that is what's needed today. We think, well, Jesus is long gone. Well, no, he's not. And that to have a transforming relationship with him is what it's all about. We need to know him. We need to have that transforming um, relationship with him, which we'll call belief. And then once that occurs, there's a challenge to you. The challenge is, will you continue, right? So once you've come to understand who Christ is and you've actually uh, come to know him through belief, will you walk with him no matter what? Will you, when the world is burning down around you, trust in him? And that's, what's, that's what this is about. And John says that in uh, his thesis statement, which I told you I'd read every week, so I'm going to read it again this week. We read in John 20, 30, 31 says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus, the man, is the Christ. He wants us to understand, what does it mean to be the Christ? The Son of God, that he is fully divine, and that believing, you may have life in his name, that you'll be transformed, and that transformation will be eternal. That the very life of God which can speak creation into existence and that animates you when you wake up every morning, right? Um, there's a, an infinite quality to it that is unending. And that's what God desires to give to you. He actually desires to give eternal life. In fact, we have that as a promise. So when the world is coming down around you, what do you do? You turn to your promises, right? What did God promise? Does anybody know what God promised and where you read that in the Bible? There's a lot of promises in the Bible. What's your favorite one? So you'll never be alone. He'll never leave you or forsake you. So that means no matter how alone you might feel, you're not alone. Jesus is right there with you. So sometimes people memorialize that in poetry. And we read a poem called Footsteps in the Sand, yeah. right? That's about that you're not alone. Whether you see it or not, Jesus is right there with you. The whole journey, he knows it. From before the beginning, he knows every day of your life, right? So what are some of the other promises we have? Yep, the whole idea that God chose us, right? That it's his desire to... Um, to single us out, as it would be. Just like when uh, Karen and I, uh, as friends, and I chose her. She didn't choose me for a long time. I had to work out real hard. <laughs> but uh, that was a, a decision in my heart that I was going to have Karen be my, my highest priority um, in the sense that I would die for her. I would do anything... Uh, in order for her good, right? Imagine if God would do anything for your good. That's what he promises in that, right? That he will be your God and you will be his people. That's what he's telling you, that he would die for you and that it's for your good. What else do we have? He's a provider. That he will provide for you. Now, that's a real hard one. So when we are uh, struggling through uh, the events of the, the day and the days as they pass, and we think, wow, where's God in this? I've you know, got this huge debt. Um, I can't get a job. All the different things that we can, can look at. How does God provide for us? He provides for us every day. Yes? Well, just going back to the Isaiah passage, which has been on my mind here. <coughs> but, uh, you know, we're the potter, we're the clay. Yep. So, yeah, we want to be this perfect vessel no blemish and used for the highest good, right? But he might say, well, actually I want you to be 
us some heartache or whatever, because it's being used for something else. Right. And we're not really the one. I mean, it's an attitude thing, right? We want it. But you've been talking about following Jesus, and, you know, I mean, we want to do that. But on the other hand, if we have the attitude that says, you know what, we're the, we're the pot, who am I to say to the potter what I should be? Right. So really our attitude should be more like, you've given me this circumstance. I'm going to do the best I can with it and learn what you want for me. But I mean, it's a whole attitude difference. And, I, and believe me, I'm, I'm not there. And, and, <laughs> I'm and still that's what wrap my head around this. Yeah. But, but um, yeah, you know, we, we want the best. And why not? And we want the best for our family. And why not? Right. But that isn't always what we get in our cup. You know what I mean? And, um, and, and you still need to make the best of right. whatever we're in. You know, whether, I mean, Paul says, you know, I've been stoned and shipwrecked and, you know, I've been my state. I mean, all this stuff. And these were the giants. Right. In faith. Okay. Yes. And so, if we're perfect and we live this great, peaceful, easy, cushy life, we're going to be a terrible pot. You know, you know what I mean? So, right. And and so it does require uh, submission. And so when we looked at First Peter, it was all about submission. And it's not just First Peter. We actually see that in um, what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. And we're going to see that in John too. When and we get to the private ministry. Just one second more. Sure. The pot doesn't become very good unless it's fired. Right. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'm just thinking about that. I was pretty okay, I'm sorry. No. These are, that's, that's why uh, God, um, through the Holy Spirit, gave Isaiah that word picture, mm-hmm. right, of the potter and the clay. Well, it would have been real to them. Yeah. It's not so real to us because hardly it was too pottery, but... Well, we we tend to think we're pretty smart in the modern world, but, you know, it's hard to improve upon those kinds of images. And then to recognize that some of us are real crackpots. (laughs) (laughs) Or we got holes in our pots. Uh, And yet, that's... God uses that. Right? And he uses it in in a powerful and effective way. And sometimes he uses that... Um, in serving others, and sometimes he's serving us, right? So we understand that that firing, that hardening, uh, to make us more usable is not something that's, I mean, if you're going through the heat, that's not a desirable place to be, but the end result is good, right? That's what we have to understand. It's hard, really hard, because none of us want that. And it's good not just because... um, we benefit from it by being a hard pot, but we become useful to God. We actually are put forth the way that he designed us. So when you read in 1 Peter, it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. That idea of being exalted doesn't mean that you're going to be raised up as a pretty pot. It means that you're going to be put forth according to the purpose for which you were designed. And so that's what that... Um, when we get to that part of John about abiding, that's what that's going to focus on, is what it looks like to stand in the fire, right? To truly be a disciple. But, but it's more than that, too, because, yes, we want to do what we're made for, because, but the reason, I mean, not only for having an ultimate kid, but, but one of the reasons is we will be the most satisfied and, the, yes. and have true joy when we're being used for the purpose that we're designed. Yep. You know, whatever that is. And so, even though it might be a hard purpose, it might be a hard task, it's really what you, you want, what the Lord wants for you. Right. <laughs> yes. Even though that means that sometimes we really get squeezed in the oh, process. Okay. Daniel? Yeah. Um, I was going to say uh, that, like uh, Tim was talking about, the, the attitude that you have while you are the pot, basically, kind of, uh, well, lately for me, I've been um, thanking God for his provision and for providing him just the, the, that very attitude itself, like, for me to even be able to care 
about these things requires God's provision, which is what Tasha said that she, uh, that's one of the things she said that she liked about God, or that he, or who he is. And so I was just relating that to what Tim was saying, and that that whole attitude is uh, based on the provision of God itself. So that's something else to be thankful for. Yeah. You even care. So, God is good all the time. One of the promises that, and I will read it to you because I think it's one worthy of underlining. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, uh, John writes this. This is the promise which he himself made to us, that is Jesus, the Christ. Eternal life. So, I would su- suggest that um, apart from life, nothing has any value to you. And that the greatest value is that life which is in him. Can I add to that one? Yep. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Yep. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Yep. So that's that whole security, um, and in a sense provision, and promise of life, the whole, the whole of it is wrapped into that statement. So that's what Jesus came for, but is he able to deliver? So that was the question. These people were saying, I've heard what you've said, but are you able to deliver? He hasn't failed yet. Well, were, he was under critical review, right? And he's trying to help them understand something that is beyond their their measure of review, right? So they put him through the religious system. So here's your religious system. It's the meat grinder, right? You're going to turn the crank, put Jesus in the top, and out the bottom should should pop out something that is your desired flavor of truth, right? And they're putting Jesus through the meat grinder of religion, trying to figure out who this guy is, um, what he's about, and uh, what authority he has to to make sure that that actually can be accomplished, right? Um, so that's really the, the bottom line. They're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And what Jesus does, as I've pointed out before, is he helps them understand through the context of their own religious experience. He looks at the institutions and the festivals, and that's where we're at right now is in one of the, one of the festivals. And it happens to be a festival that occurs after the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was when um, sin is forgiven, right? So we understand as Christians that what Christ accomplished for us on the cross was uh, forgiving our sins. That we are held harmless as a result of him taking our sin upon himself. That's what Christ did for us. So we have forgiveness. But beyond that, we actually have the penalty of sin removed. We have the debt paid or satisfied, which is what we read in Colossians. You put it in accounting terms, right? You have a debt. It's a debt that you can't pay. He paid the debt, right? He forgave you. He paid the debt. That's what occurred on the cross. And the result of that is new life. And the evidence of that is is he was raised on the third day. Right? So that's what um, happened for us. And these people are trying to understand and hold it. How can you do that? What makes you, where are you from? Right? If, if you're the guy that is Messiah, where are you from? I know you're from Nazareth, but that doesn't answer my question. I've never seen anything good come out of Nazareth. And that was a believer that said that, by the way. That was Nathaniel when Jesus approached him under the fig tree and, uh, and Jesus uh, told Nathaniel that he saw him you know, underneath the fig tree before Jesus ever came to him and that he was a man in whom was no guile, no uh, deceit. And, uh, and he said, how do you know that? Right? And, but his, his previous statement was, uh, Messiah can't come from from Nazareth, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Right. So they, they knew that it was more than just his actual roots in the world, but his roots in the world were in the right place. They just misunderstood it. He was actually from Bethlehem. 
So he was actually of the line of David. And that's exactly what Messiah was supposed to be, right? From the line of David. So who is this guy? Where is he from? Um, what is, how can he be both God and man? How can he be the son of, of God? <coughs> and as the son of God, um, does that give him authority over things that we understand are of value? In fact, life itself. And that's what we've been going through, through the festivals, through the traditions, um, through um, the institutions of the religion. They've been sitting there trying to judge him according to their religious <coughs> practice. And Jesus has been turning that back to them, saying, okay, this is your religious practice. Let's understand what it's really all about. And we come to this final uh, festival. Um, there, there will be one more that we'll see, which is uh, Hanukkah, which has to do with the light that doesn't go out. Um, and that's a story in itself, which is really cool. But at this particular festival, this is the big festival. This is the one that's seven days, right? So it comes after Messiah enters, that there's a period of mourning or repentance. Then there is atonement, which, so we understand that in the religious festivals as Rosh Hashanah. And then there's ten days of mourning. Then there's a day of atonement, right? And on the day of atonement, is when the high priest goes in and offers a sacrifice for the people. Well, in this case, the high priest was Jesus, and he went before the very throne of God, the mercy seat, and gave himself his own blood. And we understand that from a Christian perspective, but this was the religious practice of the people. They didn't know that the Christ was going to be that one. They didn't know that he would be a high priest, that he was supposed to be of the line of David. He was supposed to be a conquering king. Right? Then, after that five days, you have the Hoden the festival, which is all about entering into the presence of God. The provision and presence of God is what it's all about. So they have a seven-day hoedown. And that's what we're reading about in John chapter 7 and now chapter 8. We had tucked in the middle of this a vignette which people would argue doesn't belong there. So when we looked at, when we got to chapter 8, and the people have asked the three questions... Um, as, to, as to who Jesus is, they said, where are you from? What's your authority? And what's your purpose? Where are you going? Right? And Jesus answered all three questions, and he answered them plainly. And then there's this vignette stuck in there, which we read through last week, and I'll go ahead and read it through this week. And uh, it's all about understanding judgment. So God is both merciful, but he's also just. And so that's what this is about, because you can't understand mercy apart from justice. So if it's the mercy of God that he would actually make a sacrifice that was truly effective for us in order to give us forgiveness, in order to pay the penalty, in order to give us new life, right? An effective sacrifice. Where does justice fit into that? Right? So we need to understand that justice and mercy can't be separated. And when we read this vignette, that's why this, I believe, is stuck in the middle of our discussion. Because we want to understand who Jesus is, both from a, a perspective of God's grace, and we want to understand it from a perspective of God's justice. And then we want to understand that how it applies to us as disciples. And I saw your hand go up, David, or up, Daniel, but I'm going to go ahead and read through a little bit. Um, we'll come back says in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, says, uh, I'll, I'll go back to verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, everyone went to his home. So this was uh, concluding uh, a teaching that Jesus was doing, answering their questions, and they're trying to figure out who is this guy, how does he measure up to our religious system. Some of them rejected him, and some of them still had questions. It says, uh, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, it's commanded that we stone such women. What do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
When they heard it, they began to go out, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Right? So this is about judgment. And who is the judge? Who has the right to judge? And it just so happens the one that has the right to judge and actually cast the first stone chooses not to. He chooses not to condemn. Right? The woman is actually condemned already by her own actions. And yet no one was a just judge to come up, uh, before her and condemn her. Only God could condemn her. Especially in a matter of life and death. And Jesus, in his mercy, said, I don't condemn you either. But go and sin no more. So, where is the justice in that? Does that go against Leviticus? That's why they brought this trial to Jesus. Will he uphold the law and uh, basically condone the woman being stoned to death? Or will he show the gracious heart of God and forgive her? Okay, so I would suggest then that if your sins, if you need to suffer the penalty for your sins, then you're going to die. Right? And that you're going to be separated from God for eternity. Unless someone else dies in your place. So Jesus, whose time had not yet come, knew that he was going to die in her place. It's not that he is removing the just, the just penalty of Leviticus. He's just taking that on himself. Um, but it's not without consequence. Right? So don't continue doing that. That hurts. That's uh, the vibrations of the nails going through my, my feet and through my wrists. Right? Um, so he's not making it that graphic, but he understands that his time has not yet come. Um, we know that because when he was surrounded by this crowd of condemn, condemning uh, religious <coughs> zealots, um, Jesus walked right through them. And it's not because they didn't want to seize him and kill him on the spot. It's because his time had not yet come. No one could take his life from him. But he would lay it down. We're going to see that as we progress through this story and we get to chapter 10. We're going to find out that Jesus says, no one can take my life from him. But I will lay it down. And so that's, that's it's not that this woman's getting off scot-free. Um, if it was as easy as Jesus or God just saying, okay, you're forgiven, go on your way, um, then we would all be forgiven. Just like the man on the mat that was dropped through the, the roof and Jesus said, well, your sins are forgiven. Why can't God just say, okay, no harm, no foul, go on. Why can't that happen? Pardon? Um, if we would probably be less penitent, if we realized we could sin and there was no consequence, we could not go and sin no more, right? If we, if uh, if God chose to forgive everything, you say, okay, you're forgiven. Oh, okay, you're forgiven. Okay, you're forgiven. Repentance is unchoosing yourself in a, in a present tense format, you know, like. sinning no more would be to, to truly follow God but forgiveness has a price you can't just say okay I hold you harmless and not restore or pay the full debt associated with that 
And what Jesus does when he says, you know, I'll show you that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, I say, get up and walk. That's what he said to the guy that his mat was dropped through the, the ceiling. And, and uh, because Jesus was a healer and they wanted the man healed, and he didn't heal him. He said, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And everybody was like really incensed. Who's this guy think he is? Saying that he can just, you know, be, forgive this guy's sins. One thing, he probably doesn't even know his sins. And number two, you know, what gives him the right? And so Jesus reframes it. He says, just to show you that the Son of Man truly does have the authority to forgive sin, he had the guy get up and walk. Right? The same thing is happening with this woman. The same thing is happening for us when he dies on the cross. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows what he has come for. He knows his purpose. He knows, uh, and we read in, in chapter 5, um, he, he does the work of the Father. And in fact, the Father, just as the Father has life in himself, so also, so also the Son has life in himself and can give it to whomever he chooses. And moreover, the Son has been made the judge. Right? So, so he actually does have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. He actually does have the authority to say, I don't condemn you. You're not condemned. Don't continue doing that, though. Right? Because he knows that he's not only going to forgive sin, but he's actually going to pay the penalty. <laughs> Even though his time has not yet come, he's looking forward to that point in history where that occurs. Well, we understand that Jesus has been trying to help the people know who he is. He's been trying to help them understand through the religious stories, their tradition, their festivals, um, all of the um, trappings of their religion, what that really means, what it's really about. That, you know, just like they had provision and manna in the desert and leadership from God directly in the desert... Um, when they were in their wandering, when he brought them out of captivity, right? And they were truly captive. They were captives of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were not going to let them go. Pharaoh, it took the strong hand of God to rip them out of Pharaoh's strong hand. And they were captive. They came out. God provided for them true bread, bread from heaven. He provided for them living water right out of the rock. I would suggest that rock is Christ. He also provided for them guidance and illumination through the, the pillar of fire by day and or fire by night and as a cloud by day. Right? So he actually made himself visible as a guide to his people in directing them, you know, through the desert, out of bondage, into a promised land. So he's helping, Jesus is helping. Let's understand what this religion is all about. Don't get so stoked in religion that you forget what it's trying to tell you. And then he gets to the final piece of revelation as to who he is. And I would say this is the final piece. He's going to present himself as the one who brings them out of captivity. The one who truly sets them free. And he does this through, um, that, through illumination. That he is the light of the world. Right? says, then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this is a different kind of light. It's not your halogen light that you use for your fine detail work. It's not your LED light that you use when you take out the trash and gives you light in the darkness. I'm giving from my own experience. Um, but rather, this is a different kind of light. It's a light of life that this is what actually um, is the connection between you and God. When it says that God breathed into Adam the breath of life, this is it. This is the light of life that actually made Adam a living being. You know, we are dirt clods apart from God's breath of life, the light of life. It says, um, so the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
So the first thing that they're going to attack is they don't understand what he's revealed about himself, who he is, where he came from, even though he told them. He said, I came from heaven. I'm the son of God. They don't uh, understand that he actually has the authority of the Father, that the Father has made him judge, that he has made him the one that can give life, right? that the Father and the Son are one. And we're going to understand the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one as we move on through John. But in this case, he's made the case strongly that the Father and Son are one and that his purpose is to bring the light of life to men. But they're just making a technical statement here. Pardon? They're just making a technical statement here. It's a technical statement because they're trying him against their religion. And their religious practice says, you've got to have two witnesses to show me that you're authoritative, that this is true. And so they're saying, your testimony is not true. That's a really, uh, that's, when you think about it, these guys are spitting in the face of God. That's what they're doing. They're telling God that he doesn't know what he's talking about. They're using earthly standards. They're using an earthly standard. Exactly. Because there's this whole kingdom of the world thing. And the kingdom of God does not necessarily make sense in the kingdom of the world. That's why I started with Isaiah. Because you look around you and you see it's a flaming wreck. Right? But that's not what's really going on here. What's really going on is that God has come down from heaven as the light of life. To give that to us. To track down and redeem us. So they're saying, nah, not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh or the world. I am not judging anyone. So at this point, Jesus is not standing in the judge's chair passing uh, a judgment about condemned or non-condemned, right? He knows that the world has come, is condemned already. Um, that rather, he's there to deal with the condemnation that we already stand under. So he's, he's not there to point out to them their sin. That should be obvious to them. But nonetheless, they don't see it because they're judging by a different standard. They're judging by the standard of the world. He says, but even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. In other words, he's now uh, making, if you were in a, a classic rhetorical argument, one of the warrants or defenses that you would bring, evidence that you would bring, is what they call an appeal to authority. He's appealing to an authority that they will acknowledge, which is God in heaven. They don't acknowledge that he's God on earth, but he'll say, okay, if you don't believe me, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but the one who sent me, the Father, um, we are one. I am the Father. So I am testifying to you that which he has given me the authority to testify. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. So he's invoking their own law to help them understand that there are two witnesses that bring warrant uh, that his statement is true. He says... I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Now, we already know that up to this point, he had shown them repeatedly that um, the Father had given him authority on earth, both authority to heal, authority to judge, authority to forgive, right? And that, that's what he's, he's, he's basically saying. Now, you remember, right, um, this is the testimony that the Father has made about me. And you recall back in chapter 5 that there were uh, five evidences or five warrants that were brought to support him. There was uh, the evidence of John the Baptist. So one of their own said, this is the Christ. Follow him. There was the evidence of the Father, which was there at Jesus' baptism. The, the voice spoke, this is my beloved son. Right? Um, there was the evidence of um, the work that Jesus had done. No one has done these things before that Jesus was doing. There was the evidence of Scripture. 
And I remember what the fifth evidence is. There were five evidences that were brought. Somebody remind me. Karen's gone, so she, I can't look at her notes. Did you say five? Pardon? Did you say five? Yeah, there was five. I can go back here a couple days. A couple days. Um, so we have, uh, well, and Jesus himself, there's the fifth, right? So Jesus himself, the Father, John the Baptist, the works, and Scripture. So there are five evidences that he's brought. So he didn't just bring two, he brought five. And now he's going back and he's reminding them of two of the five. He said, oh, by the way, I do have, I can make a true judgment, and this is, this is the evidence that I can do it. So they were saying to him, well, where is your father? Jesus answered, you, uh, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Uh, because he and his father are one. Right? So now this starts getting a little bit dicey as far as the logic. In that um, they're, they're trying to bring uh, a religious argument against Jesus. He's answering them in their own, reli- their own religion. And his appeal to authority um, is that he is the authority. He and the Father are one. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So at this point, when he identifies himself with God, he's blasphemer, right? But it wasn't time for him to go. And it says that this takes place in the treasury. And I know I'm getting close on time. This is uh, a picture of the temple where Jesus would have been teaching. And uh, I don't know if that's in focus or not. It's pretty good. Is it pretty good? Yeah. Well, without glasses, for me, it's not in focus. Mm-hmm. Let me try this. There we go, a little bit too. Okay, so what you have here is you have a, a big, this Herod's like, let's do everything big. In fact, he would, would move one top of a mountain to another top because he wanted another mountain bigger, right? So Herod does everything big. So this is the entrance to the temple, um, temple area proper, where they would make their daily sacrifice. Outside of this in front is what's called the court of the women. And right here between the court of the women and where they would enter into the, the temporary, temple area proper, where they would make their sacrifice, there were these uh, horn-shaped things where they would throw in their offerings. So they had a lot of, their offerings were taxes, right? So they had a lot of taxes they had to pay. And this was where they would make those tax payments, was at the, at the temple before the, the altar. The treasury? Pardon? The treasury? That's the treasury. Okay. Yep. And then this area on the outside here, this is called the Court of the Gentiles. And uh, I actually have another picture here where I can show that. Uh, So here's kind of uh, from the top looking down. You have the Court of the Women. You have the Court of the Gentiles outside. Um, You have the Holy of Holy Place right here. This is where the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice would be made. That's where the mercy seat is. You would have your normal... Uh, religious practice that would happen daily with the showbread and the menorah and all of those different things, the light and the bread. Um, so, so all of these things were all about Jesus. He's saying, you know, this is, this is about God's redemptive program in me. And so he's trying to help them understand that. And right here would be where they would make that offering. And it would be before the altar coming in. So the altar is on the way into the holy place. Right? So all of this is uh, to demonstrate who, uh, what God is doing and who he is in Christ. And so um, that's why John points this out. He says, you know, these words were spoken in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him. So if, if there was a bigger offense, I can't think of what it would be. He says, he stands right here and he says, I am the father of one. That's what he says. And it really upsets him. Uh, And it says, uh, he then goes on and says says to him, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, they have no entrance into heaven apart from him. Your sin separates you from God. So you can't go there on your own. So the Jews are saying, surely he will not kill himself. Will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So he's using as clear of English, you know, it's like Mitch said, why wouldn't he speak plain? Well, that's pretty plain. He's saying where he's from. 
Where he's from is actually um, from the throne of God. He's saying where he's not from, not like where he is from. Well, he says where he's from, but they don't get it. You know, they keep thinking, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to the Greeks? Are you going to kill yourself? So they just, even though he speaks plainly, they misunderstand it. How often do we do that? Karen's not here, so I can't, can't use the example. There are many times I say things, and, and Karen sees it a completely different way. Or she'll say something, and I see it a completely different way. Right? And that um, that's the words by themselves um, don't have meaning. It's just a word. Right? You have to put it in a context. You have to be able to um, basically look at it from multiple perspectives all the way around before you catch the meaning. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to give them multiple perspectives. And that they just don't get it. Um, he goes on to say, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, he's saying unless you believe that God has come to you in the flesh, you will die in your sins. Because there is no remedy. You have nothing apart from me. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what I've been saying to you from the beginning. Right? What have you heard? Let me clarify for you. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They just didn't get it because they were looking for something else. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And this is where we're going to end today is that in the course of Jesus trying to say as plainly as he could who he was, where his origin was, what authority he had, and what he came to do, in the course of that, some people came to believe in him. And what I would say is that's kind of where we sit today. Jesus has revealed himself and we have heard that passed down through our Christian tradition and through the exposition of Scripture, right? So when I'm teaching to you from this Bible, I'm teaching to you from uh, a great effort in preservation of the very words of God, right? So we have that revelation, and we sit here today exactly where those people sat. Many came to believe in him. But the next sentence is what should, should rock you, because... Even though people came to believe in him, a lot did not follow him. So Jesus was saying uh, to those Jews, those who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Now they're going to go back to their religious argument. What are you talking about? Freedom. I'm not in captivity. They were in so much bondage they couldn't see you know, the, the nose on their face. And yet, they were going to argue now about another religious aspect. And these are the ones that believed. How often do we get caught in this today? Where we argue about the things of the faith on technical issues. So last night I was playing Canasta and, uh, with a good Christian friend of mine. And he brought up the whole uh, annihilation versus eternal punishment debate about hell. That's the kind of thing that is a religious practice. Am I going to get caught up in turning the crank and trying to judge God according to my standards of my understanding of religion? Or am I going to embrace the Christ and follow him no matter what? That's, the, that's what's put before us today. That's what was put before these people. And I will suggest to you it's not easy. That's why these guys really struggled with it to the point of rejecting Christ. These would be the same people that shouted in the court, crucify him. These would be the same people that would have witnessed his death on the cross. They may have eventually come back through repentance. But those that believe are a lot like us. They heard a good message, but did it actually change them such that they were willing 
to be made free. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for your opportunity uh, today to come to your word. and It's just so rich, Lord. Uh, there's so much that I'm skipping over, but Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would press upon people's hearts today the incredible gravity of what we're looking at. If you reveal yourself as, as God, left leaving your throne to come down to save us, and that, um, Lord, it, it's personal. And Lord, um, I'm just so grateful that you've made it possible that we can come to you, that you've um, removed obstacles and blinders and, and given us uh, the privilege of knowing you through choosing us. Lord, I just thank you for that. Lord, I lift to you those that are here today. Lord, I ask that you continue to protect and to provide Lord, and we thank you so much for your service and laying down your life for us. Lord, we pray for those that will be in the, the uh, service this morning, that they'll uh, hear your word going out in Clark County through Youth for Christ. And uh, that we can, this is a ministry that we can get behind, Lord, that you will uh, help us to see how we can be obedient in service to you through supporting ministries that you've got going on in the community. Lord, we thank you for all this. We ask that you would, the Holy Spirit would uh, be with uh, in a very powerful way the speakers this morning um, and that uh, it wouldn't be us, Lord, but it would be you. We thank you for all of this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.